Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. As plant-based foods have risen in popularity, the technology to develop them has become increasingly complicated. Today, journalist Larissa Zimbaroff joins us to talk about what actually goes into the Impossible Burger, when lab-grown meat will be affordable, and how a network of fungus called mycelium could actually replace your favorite breakfast meat. So now people are growing mycelium in these big steel tanks, or there's a company on the East Coast making bacon. They're growing it in trays. So layer upon layer upon layer, this mycelium is kind of instructed to grow. And then they have this slab that they then can smoke and add flavors to, and then they can cut it like bacon. Also coming up, we learn how to make a flavorful Mexican-style chicken soup with chipotle chilies. And Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett explain how kitchen utensils got their names. But first, anthropologist and food writer Meher Varma talks about endless variations on the lentil dish dal and what these recipes reveal about the people making them. Meher, welcome to uh, Milk Street. Thank you. So let's talk about dal, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you write, no two dolls are the same. It is indicative of the background and is indicative of class and caste. Mm-hmm. So how, how does dal and how you prepare it indicate caste and class? Yeah, so 
often tomatoes and onions and garlic as well. For a lot of upper middle class homes, those are considered kind of non-negotiable in the dal preparation. You wouldn't make a dal unless you had those things. But when I actually went from house to house and I went to less privileged homes, I realized that these are definitely not things that you can take for granted. And so sometimes there is no onion or onions are too expensive and that needs to be substituted with something else. Or for example, in a more privileged house, it will be made with ghee, tarka, which is the kind of the finishing, the tempering. But for a poor person, that might be something that you would have only when guests are over. So access to certain things determines the dal and access is, of course, shaped by who you are in the, you know, in the grand social hierarchy of things. So you talk about this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, you went, I just imagine you walking down the street, <laughs> knocking on doors. What exactly did you do and how did you do it? Well, I just talked to a bunch of people that I knew who live not so far away from each other, but their worlds were very different. And so I essentially just invited myself over to their homes and asked them if I could watch them cook dal, which is kind of a weird thing to ask because it's like asking <laughs> someone whether you can watch them make eggs and toast. Uh, there was actually maybe some kind of idea that I was trying to read something else from this exercise, which I which I really was. And I think some people caught on to that. Uh, and the other place for error is that, of course, when I came over, I think what was prepared was more lavish than what would have normally been prepared because I was a guest. Right. But I still was able to see a lot of variation. So, okay, so give us two examples. One is is like the, the, the simplest, fastest way of preparing dal. And then you talk about something that's long simmered and much more complex. Could you give us an example of either extreme of these? So um, usually the luxurious versions are more written about and documented. So sometimes the luxurious kind of aristocratic versions have meat in the dal, ghee in the dal, there's dozens of tomatoes, lots of garlic, the best turmeric, things like that. But I've actually come to know now, thanks to this exercise, of dal that is literally prepared with just a bit of salt, a bit of chili, maybe half an onion, and literally whatever is on hand. The other big difference occurs with the pressure cooker. So right. even in the recipes that I listed, which I tried to represent a diversity of class and caste, everyone had a pressure cooker. But that's also not a given. Uh, a lot of people who don't have pressure cookers have to cook the dal on an open flame, which is more time consuming. And it's more time consuming for people who have less time anyway, because they're working two or three jobs in order to even feed themselves. Right. So the entire ritual of preparation, eating, feeding tells you a lot about the person and where they're coming from. So what you're really saying, I guess, is the dal can be anything, right? I mean, yeah. you can put mango in it, you can put mutton in it, you can you can just put spices and tomatoes and onions in it. Were there any other recipes you found particularly appealing? I, I think just the everyday dal, it's very light on the stomach. I wrote about one dal that a couple taught to me that is called uh, bimaroka dal, which means the dal of the sick. But for them, it was the way in that they kind of wooed each other. It was like very important in their courtship because it was this mm. mild dal. And they had some kind of philosophical ideas about the shape of lentils being round and, um, Hmm. you know, wholesome. So there's a lot to extrapolate on. But even for me, who's someone who's thinking deeply about dal, 
it's kind of a funny exercise because it's 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 like thinking about something very mundane very deeply so i think i'm i'm still making sense of what lies behind this right why is this narcissism of small differences so apparent to the extent where one of my friends actually broke up with the guy that she was dating because she said the doll in his house was just off right and when she said it was <laughs> off i i was like let's dissect that a little bit what do you mean off because you're not talking about onions and garlic you're talking about something else and it was something else it was about where he came from and that offness became a code for class and caste and lots of other things <laughs> so so let's just as you said dissect that so the idea that the shape of the lentils mm-hmm. or how you season it all of those things are defining of who you are and what caste you're from etc but also among a couple, how they're going to get along mm-hmm. because they, they have to find a doll that works for both of them, yes. right? Yeah. God, food's complicated. I just, <laughs> like, I just thought we'd have dinner and it turns out we're actually discussing whether our marriage is going to survive or not. You know? Yeah. And not even, it's it can be very passive aggressive, right? Like you can just say that something's off and uh, you think it's about the salt, but it's not. It's something much deeper. Maya, this has been uh, extraordinarily interesting. Uh, it's been really a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. That was cultural anthropologist and food writer Meher Varma. Her article, The Doll Directory, was written for the food blog, Fiddles. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Chris, um... What do you think about mulled wine? I hate it. Okay. I think it's a vile. I think it's yeah. I I I back in college, I friend of mine is Swedish, and he always did the mulled wine thing, and I just don't get it. Putting spices into wine, I no. I thought you were going to say that. If you'd asked me the same question, I probably would have answered the same way. But over the holidays, my son's girlfriend was with us, and she is from Honduras, but she spent some time in Norway. And that was a drink that they had during the holidays. And so she wanted to make it for us. And of course, I said yes. I wanted her to make whatever she wanted to. And when we did our postmortem after the holidays about what was the favorite thing we ate, both my husband and I agreed that it was the mulled wine. What? So let me, let, yes, no, let me tell okay. you what she did that was slightly different. I mean, there was fresh orange slice that was put into the glass, and we used little glasses, and we put mm-hmm. dried cranberries in the bottom. But when she heated up the wine, she heated it up very gently, and she added very little sugar and, you know, the usual spices, some cinnamon. I think some allspice, some cloves, but she also added bourbon. Oh, well, and I have well, of to say it was absolutely delicious. Well, that's not really okay. That's not really mulled wine. That's bourbon with some wine. That's no, no, no. <laughs> it's mostly wine. It really okay. was. But that little accent of the bourbon huh. in the backdrop, yeah. fantastic. I'll have to get the recipe and share it with okay. you. Okay. Any rate, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, it's Graham calling from the Atlanta area. Hi, Graham. How can we help you today? So, I've grown up with beans and rice, and there is something that I've never really delved into, and that is wild rice. So, I've been looking at it a little bit more closely recently, 
various cooking methods. And one of the methods that came up was the steeping method, which, you know, from my lifetime of drinking tea, I'm somewhat familiar with. But I'd like to get your guys' views on what is the correct way of actually cooking wild rice. The way I have always done it is to simmer it in salted water. First of all, let's just start by saying that wild rice is not a grain, it's a grass. And there's so many different kinds you can find, but the main difference being there's wild, wild rice, which hasn't been treated all that much, and then there's cultivated wild rice. And the thing about wild rice, regardless of what the back of the package says, you're sort of on your own, and you have to more look what it should look like than timing. So I find that I feel I have the most control when I go with roughly a ratio of two or two and a half to a one liquid to rice, making sure, of course, you rinse the rice really well and in salted water. And then simmer it. It takes anywhere from 40 to 50 minutes. And you can take it till it just starts to pop or until most of them do. You don't want to go too far. It gets mushy. I wouldn't soak it. I just feel like you couldn't control it as much as simmering it and keeping an eyeball on it. And by the way, you do that covered. And if there's any excess liquid, you can just pour it off. Burn it off. Yeah, but let's see what Chris has to say. Two things. I boil in plenty of water. I wouldn't worry about two cups or two and a half to one or whatever. You do more of the pasta method? Yeah, just the pasta method because you're never going to get the amount of water right. Two, you have to be really careful because – most wild rice, it is not all wild rice because it's so expensive. It's a mix, right, with other but stuff. But it will say on the package. But, yeah, but it, the real stuff is really expensive. So if you cook a wild rice mix in a lot of water, some of that stuff that's not really wild rice is going to get blown out fast. You do want to make sure you're dealing with all wild rice, which is going to cost a pretty penny. Yeah, I will definitely say that I do have all wild rice sitting on top of my fridge. It did cost a pretty penny, and I would love to be able to cook it correctly. (laughs) Just throw in a bunch of salted water and simmer it for 45 minutes. You know, I actually do agree with Chris, because the thing about doing the ratios is it doesn't mean anything if you have a different size pot, meaning if you have a tight little pot, you know, it's going to be covered enough. If you have a wider pot, then the water is going to evaporate sooner. So I'm going to go back and agree with Chris that the pasta method is probably better. Dear Diary, Sarah agrees with me today. I've come to that conclusion with white rice. I no longer go with proportions. I now go with finger. The height of a finger. Right. If you put your finger out horizontally. Right, 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 right. It's the thickness of a finger. Right, right. Not the length. Because every pot is different. So, yeah, I would do salted boiling water, but I would keep a very good eye on it. And as soon as it starts popping open, taste it and see how you like it. And if you want it all to pop open, because you can overcook it and you also can undercook it. Al dente wild rice is not a good idea. No. (laughs) Anyway. I, I will keep that in mind. And let us know how it goes, Graham. Thanks, Graham. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, take care. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's John. I'm calling from Boston. How can we help you? A couple of years ago, I was given a carbon steel gratin dish because of a love of a cheesy French alpine recipe called Croute Savoyard. Mm-hmm. That's super cheesy and bready, gooey and crispy all at the same time. It's really amazing. Until my average... Tuesday night in Boston includes ski touring to a hut. I think I'm looking for other ways to justify the shelf space for the pan. I recognize this is just a frying pan with two short handles, 
but nevertheless was wondering if you guys had any creative ideas of how to use a gratin technique without the usual heavy cream or thick cheese that accompany the traditional recipes. Figured desserts and crumbles and streusels are a way to start, but what about other sides or mains? Well, leave out the heavy cream and the cheese. I mean, you can just put whatever you want. You can put vegetables. You could do a combination of meat and vegetables, you know, whatever in the pan, put it in a high oven, roast it, take it out, finish it with a gratin finish, which could be breadcrumbs with seasonings or breadcrumbs with cheese or whatever you want. Put that on top, throw it under the broiler for a few minutes to finish, and you're good to go. A gratin has just got, you know, a coating, a covering, a top layer of some kind which is usually browned under yeah. a broiler. So the, you can do anything you want underneath that layer, and it doesn't have to have any cheese in it. Would you try anything other than breadcrumbs under the broiler? Like, what, is there anything else you could think of that we could fire under a broiler? Well, I was going to say a mixture. If you threw some nuts in there, it would be healthier. You could mix up the crumbs and the nuts, and they would brown up nicely. You know, let's say you used panko or even croutons, you know, just a little oil and some nuts and did that. I mean, in terms of the cheese, you know, a good option is just Parmesan on the top because a little bit of Parmesan goes a long way and it will still give you that nice browning on the top. But you could do like a really nice, robust vegetable stew with eggplant and tomatoes and uh, then just put some crummy stuff on top. I had a white pizza in Vermont, of all places, recently that was fabulous. They put a little fresh ricotta on it when they finished it. So little piles of fresh ricotta on it and then under the broiler for a couple of minutes. That would be fabulous. You know what you're making me think of is, is a lot of Greek dishes, they'll make a bechamel, and you can make a bechamel, meaning a cream sauce, with 1% milk even. And they will do like a pasticcio or moussaka or something, and they'll put the bechamel on top, and then they'll sprinkle some Greek cheese more like Parmesan on top, and that will brown it. And that will give you the creamy, cheesy stuff without all the heavy, creamy, or cheesy feta. stuff. Yeah. Or feta. Feta is feta great, too. Feta would be great, too. Yeah. Um, John, I think it's okay to, to splurge every so often, yeah. too. So sometimes use it for the full-on Severod. Yeah, know. the cold weather certainly helps. Yeah, yeah just once do a it. month. And then do yeah, a few sit-ups, and you'll feel much better. John, thanks for calling. <laughs> okay. All right, thanks a Bye. lot. Appreciate Bye. it. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Bill from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hi, Bill. How can we help you today? I've got a simple question about uh, sifting flour, cocoa powder, confectionery sugar, that kind of stuff. Right. When I've done sifting, should I force those little bits through the sieve or should I just toss them? I mean, it probably doesn't matter, but it's going to affect the weight. I assume I weigh it after I sift. Well, you know, recipes, if they're written well, will tell you when to sift it. So it will say two cups of sifted flour or two cups of flour sifted. I mean, in the old days, everything was sifted to get rid of little bugs and, you know, things like that. That's not really an issue these days. But the reason to sift it before you measure it is to lighten it up so it's much more aerated. In that case, you know, just push all the flour through. For something else like confectioner sugar, just do your best. That's, again, so it doesn't clump in whatever you're adding it to. Usually, if you're weighing it, it doesn't tell you to sift it. But two cups flour, comma, sifted means 
you obviously weigh it and then sift it. Right, of course. But anyway, I think the real key here, what you're looking for is where that comma is, where that word sifted is, if it's before or after. Now, just to really irritate everybody, I never sift flour, ever. I don't either. Now, if you're doing something where there could be clumps, like some kind of a sugar that might be clumpy, or, yeah, then I get it. But flour, I would never bother sifting flour. I don't think it makes a difference. But the other things I would generally force them through as best as I can, and then you bang the sifter over the bowl, which will make that go through even faster. Did we answer any of your questions, or we just confused everybody? <laughs> yeah, you hit most of them, but I wanted to go back to the weight of flour in a cup. Yep. And I think what's really key is that you use whatever measurement the developer of the recipe yes, uses. Yes, you're correct. That's 100% true. And it's all over the place. I mean, King Arthur says one thing. We King say Arthur else. is 120 grams per cup, and Chris I would think say one, more. We say 130, yeah, 135. That's right. But in ounces, essentially, all-purpose flour is five ounces per cup. But I agree with what you just said, which is if you have somebody who's a serious recipe tester developer, yes, and they say at the beginning of the book, I use this kosher salt, I use this uh, weight for flour, then you can trust that the recipe will work because that's how they tested it. So that's a very good point, Bill. What if someone's not serious? What if they're a comedic <laughs> recipe developer? Sarah's given me. Sarah has the best looks ever. Yeah. You don't ever have to talk. You can just look at me. I know, really. And I know exactly what you're saying. I know. Anyway, I think we answered your question. Yes, you did. Thank you very and much. And that was a very good question, Bill. A great question. Thanks, yeah. Bill. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, journalist Larissa Zimbaroff tells us about the future of the plant-based food industry. That and more after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with journalist Larissa Zimbaroff. Her book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat, is a look at the science behind the growing plant-based food industry. Larissa, welcome to Milk Street. 
Thank you, Chris. It's so wonderful to be here. So when you use the term new food, we're talking about impossible burger. We're talking about creating meat out of plants or in the lab. What is a new food? So it's algae, it's mycelium, it's growing mycelium in a big metal tank and making it into chicken. You know, greenhouses have been around for a very long time, but vertical farms haven't been around for longer than maybe 15 years. So these are not necessarily new ways of science, but new ways of thinking about what can be our food. I remember the book Diet for a Small Planet, and you quote from it, you say the most wasteful and inefficient food systems are those controlled by a few in the interests of a few. Now, I understand why at the time that was written, but you're now extending this concept to the new foods. So why would the new foods still fit this description, controlled by a few in the interests of a few? I think that initially these companies are mission-based. However, the trend shows that big food is getting into their, their swimming pool of new foods. So we may think it's lots of small startups with lots of ideas and innovation, but in reality, if we looked at plant-based meat, we would see only a few companies, and also many of them owned already by big food. So the new foods is an expression of IP. It's, it's sort of like Silicon Valley meets big ag and has found a way to uh, to have the attributes of a startup, right, a digital startup. But you also mentioned they had a mission. And, and what exactly is that mission? Yeah, they're looking to end industrial animal agriculture. Most of these founders are vegans and animal cruelty is very high up on their list. Right. I think climate is beginning to trump the save the animals plea So right now they're mission-based as more investment comes from big food, as more investment comes in from bigger players, as companies are bought up, I think that could change. Um, These companies are also dependent upon, like you said, this like agricultural system. They still depend on crops. Cultured meat will depend on nutrients that we already know. So I think one of the problems is that no one's rethinking our American diet, they're just layering on a new piece of technology on an old system. So I wrote the book because it was like, well, where's my health in these priorities? Because I didn't see it. And to me, that's where one of the problems exists. Let's try to make sense of this because this is complicated. So you write, if you were to eat whole peas, you get phytonutrients, And when you process peas to make pea milk, then you're losing everything else. So before we get on to the new foods and the new building blocks, the first step is processing of foods. And that is problematic or not? So most food is processed in some ways. So people like to make this argument that milk has to be processed. You know, it comes from the cow and it has to be pasteurized. There are all these sort of steps that are quote unquote processing. But a pea being turned into pea protein, into pea milk, that's many, many steps of processing. So the pea is fractionated and turned into carbohydrates, starch, and protein. The protein is taken in one place. It's grown in another place. 
and then it goes to somebody else who <laughs> processes it and maybe to somebody else, right? So it's how many steps did your food take to get created? What are some of the challenges um, in the burgers trying to get the sense of, you know, blood red meat? And that had to be, that took a long time to figure out how to do that. How did they figure that out? So Impossible uses something called heme, which is a hemoglobin. It's, it's the iron that moves around in our blood, but it also comes from uh, soybeans. But because they need it at scale, what Impossible is doing is uh, genetically engineered. And so this heme helps change the color from pink to red, and it changes the flavor, something that helps the Maillard reaction, that, that sort of yeah, that, that browning effect. But if you look at Beyond Meat, you know, they're using beetroot to color it, or they're using, I know they've, they've been trying to get it from, you know, flowers or herbs, and they aren't relying on that heme. But I think that cultured meat is, is, the, is the holy grail. So the hamburger, obviously, is one of the first things people are working on. Are we ever going to get a ribeye steak, or is it only going to be ground meat? Oh, Chris, people are working on this all night and day. So I recently tried Wagyu and elk and lamb from a company, a startup in California called Orbillion. Now, they did not have the texture, but they had flavor and they had animal cells. I think these cultured meat companies are really working hard, but they can only make meat for the rich. You know, every time you scale up going from the lab to a hundred gallon, a thousand gallon, 10,000 gallon, bigger, bigger, a hundred thousand. You know, sugar is made at these quantities, but sugar is simple compared to cultured meat. So getting there is really, I mean, it's, it's one of those mind bending principles that we may or may not ever achieve. So let's talk about the building blocks. And you mentioned mycelium, which is one of, one of the biggies. What, what is mycelium and what do they do with it? Mycelium is certainly one of the ones I'm very excited about. Mycelium is the thread-like network under the forest floor, if we found it in nature. Uh, the mushroom is the fruiting body that grows above ground. So now people are growing mycelium in these big steel tanks, or there's a company on the East Coast making bacon. They're growing it in trays. So layer upon layer upon layer, this mycelium is kind of instructed to grow. And then they have this slab that they then can smoke and add flavors to, and then they can cut it like bacon. So this mycelium is maybe five to seven ingredients, very simple, with not many steps of processing. It does grow exponentially fast. Um, in the same way that people look at cultured meat and say, how is that possibly going to scale? You can look at mycelium and think, oh, that's easy. It can be fed scraps. The scraps can be the carbohydrates that it needs to grow. Um, then it just needs water. And it's pretty delicious. So here, here's where I get confused. So you talk about, I think you had a steak made from mycelium and other things and thought it was pretty good. And you say it's a fairly simple item. How do we choose between, let's say, mycelium and then analog protein or textured vegetable protein or isolated soybean protein? Are some of these things good ideas and hold the way to the future? Or some things you think are potentially bad? How do you rate these building blocks? Yeah. 
packaged food is sort of become the building block of the American diet. And packaged food isn't the best, right? Because so much is going into it. I'm talking like chips and candy and cookies and, and these burgers made from, you know, 15 ingredients that have textured vegetable protein or soybean protein isolate that have multiple ingredients that have been touched by a dozen companies, if not more, and then are created into these burgers. Now, mycelium doesn't have to go through that. It's simpler. We might say there's not a lot of downstream processing. So this company in Boulder, this startup Meaty, can grow it in a tank, compress it into a chicken shape, which I tried, and then sell it to me with just a few other ingredients. And the, the macronutrients, the building blocks, are the things we know. It's not engineered to be the Dorito. And to me, that's the difference. So on the cutting edge of this technology, are there some really exciting things going on beyond mycelium, et cetera? Oh, yeah. Um, I think one of the crazy things that I haven't really wrapped my head around yet is there are people taking CO2 from the air and methane from the air and turning it into protein. What? I know, right? So, you know, they could like set up shop next to Clorox or some kind of gas refinery and take their emissions out of the air and turn them into protein. Um, The microbes will eat these emissions and turn them into, eventually they'll have a powder. And then that powder could be turned into a chicken or I kind of see it in a better way to be turned into fish food maybe or food for cows. Um, but there are people tinkering. So they'll call it the air burger. Right, right. right. No calories. You can't even see it. (laughs) This sounds like an episode of Flash Gordon from the 1940s. Um, well, that, that would certainly be terrific, you know, recycling carbon emissions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely interesting, but hard to imagine that it's going to create something delicious. Like, you know, an Italian meal, like your, you know, someone's grandma made. It makes you wonder, because um, I, I, my cooking now is becoming more and more basic, you know, plant-based, grains, beans, other things. But, but you know, sort of like southern Italy, Calabria, that kind of thing, very basic, very simple, not, not too clever. And so you always just wonder whether people went back to that kind of diet, which doesn't have a lot of really expensive ingredients and the cooking techniques are pretty straightforward, whether that's a better way to go than trying to make a $20 burger. Do you ever think about that? That th- There is something to learn from the past, right? Yes, absolutely. I I want the same investment that's going to food tech to be going to regenerative organic yeah. farming, to be going to local food industries. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't want impossible to be in every corner of the earth. Like, why do companies have to become the Facebook, the Apple, the impossible. Why, why can't we have smaller local food companies that are really focused on their, their, their community? Farming has a soul, right? Small farming anyway. Larissa, it's been uh, a real pleasure. Thank you, Chris. I loved being here. That was journalist Larissa Zimbaroff. Her book is Technically Food inside Silicon Valley's mission to change what we eat. You know, I'm no fan of fake burgers. Many contain highly processed ingredients, such as textured wheat protein, potato protein, soy-based hemoglobin, xanthan gum, soy protein isolated, and many others. 
American corporations invest in products that they can patent. They have intellectual property and not in commodities such as tomatoes and broccoli. But the solution to better food is really very simple. Support small farmers who grow and sell food locally. This requires an investment in infrastructure so that, say, a pig farmer can find a meat processing plant nearby with distribution into local markets. So one more time, it's really simple. Just eat unprocessed local foods. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, chicken and vegetable soup with chipotle chilies. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You and I travel a lot, you more than me, and uh, virtually every destination includes chicken soup, right? (laughs) Almost everyone. We've had many of them, and in fact, we've had more than one Mexican chicken soup. But this one is one of my favorites. It has chipotle chilies in it. Yeah, this was a really fascinating approach to chicken soup. I know that that sounds almost like a contradiction. Like how fascinating can a bowl of chicken soup be? It's comforting, but is it fascinating? Well, you know, in Mexico City, I ate at a restaurant run by Josefina Lopez Mendez, and she offered me something called caldo talpeño. And it didn't come to the table as a big bowl of chicken soup, which was, I think, the first hint that something was going to be different here. It actually came in multiple bowls. This is chicken soup deconstructed, or rather, to be constructed at the table. (laughs) So it starts out as a bowl of rice, and on top of which is a bunch of shredded chicken. And then there's a separate bowl that has a really rich broth. And they've made this broth with the chipotles and tomatoes, and they simmer it down until it's really, really rich and thick. And then there's all these other add-ons in these side bowls, you know, green beans and carrots and zucchini, avocado, cilantro, lime, salsa, all this other stuff. So she brings this all to the table, and you construct your chicken soup, your caldo tolpeño, the way you want. And I got to say, the layers of flavor and texture were just mind-blowing. There was a salsa, too, on top? Yeah, yeah, there was a charred habanero salsa. Mm. And I got to tell you, Josefina, she really leans in on the char. And I'm not a guy who likes burnt food, so I wasn't sure I was going to like this. But man, does it deepen the flavors. I mean, she takes habanero chilies, and she takes garlic, cloves, and red onions, and she just puts them on a kamal and really scorches them. And when they are really browned and and almost, I'm going to say crunchy, she just grinds them up into a salsa Mm. with some lime juice and some salt. And Mm. boy, does that flavor pop when you add it to this chicken soup. Why is it that American chicken soup doesn't even compare to this? It's so It tells you so much about a culture, right? Oh, it really does. I mean, you know, I, when I think of the worst chicken soups of my childhood, I'm thinking limp noodles, flavorless yeah. chicken, a broth that is more oily than flavorful, yeah. and, you know, overcooked carrots. Not very exciting. But this, like I said, it was just layer upon layer of texture. You know, you have a lot of the vegetables were actually raw or barely blanched. So you're getting crunch from those green beans and from that zucchini. And then you're getting, you know, creaminess and that kind of richness from the avocado. And you're getting the bright, fresh herbal flavor from the cilantro. And then you're getting the depth from the chipotles and the tomato, the savoriness. It was a lot in the mouth, a lot to kind of process, but in a great way. This starts with chicken thighs or parts or whatever, 
and chicken broth, right? And then you cook them together. So you almost end up with a double broth that then I guess is the base for the soup, but also you use to cook the rice, right? Exactly. You're basically making kind of a bold broth. You take your tomatoes, you take onion and some chilies and the garlic and some cilantro stems, and you're simmering that to make this kind of enriched liquid. And then you cook your chicken in it. You're poaching the chicken in it. You take the chicken out and then you shred the chicken for use later. And then you make your rice separately. So now you have this really, really rich broth. You have your rice, you have your chicken, which has been cooked in a lot of those elements as well. And then you have all these other things that you add to it, you know, the avocado and the vegetables and all that. And then when you start assembling it, it just really comes together. Jam, thank you. A chicken and vegetable soup with chipotle chilies, although that sounds very much like Fanny Farmer. So the authentic recipe is called what again? Caldo telpeño, which I agree sounds far more romantic than the English. (laughs) That's so much better. And so as is the soup. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can get this recipe for chicken and vegetable soup with chipotle chilies at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett explain how kitchen utensils like the whisk got their names. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kayla, and I'm calling from Hadley, Massachusetts. Well, hello. How can we help you today? I recently had the opportunity to buy some flash-frozen salmon from my local co-op, and it's wild salmon. And I haven't cooked as much wild salmon as I've cooked farmed, and I'm finding that it's a little on the dry and tough side, and I'm wondering if you have suggestions of ways to prepare it that would help it to be more tender. Well, it's going to be difficult because it has a lower fat content than the farm salmon, so it's not going to be as tender. I would say make sure that you don't overcook it, for sure, undercook it. And how you know very unscientifically is, let's say you bake it or let's say you're sautéing it and you stick a knife through it at a certain point when you think it might be beginning to get done. If it's completely cooked through, the knife will go through easily. If it's not, you'll get resistance midway, which means it's like medium rare or so. So I would slightly undercook it. The other thing is there's no getting around the fact that it's lower in fat content, so I'd serve it with a buttery sauce or a fatty sauce of some Hmm. kind. But let's see what Chris has to say. Ah, the French always comes out. Yes, here's a recipe for you. 
Uh, get a 12-inch skillet. Hopefully, you have center-cut fillets, so they're all pretty even. Cut a couple lemons into fairly thick rounds and put the rounds on the bottom of the pan. Put some parsley or cilantro stems or tarragon in, and then add a little stock, like chicken stock and or some wine, white wine, or just use white wine. Put the fish on top, bring it up to simmer, cover, cook 10 to 12 minutes. And that will give you a really moist, steamed fish. It's just a a great go-to recipe. That should work particularly well with a leaner wild salmon. So you're saying cook it in a wet environment? Steam it, because if you dry roast it or saute it, you're going to tend to dry it out. So that's what I would do. Thank you. That's a great suggestion. Thank you to both of you. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Yes. Take care. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a kitchen mystery that needs solving, give us a ring. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Marlo. Hi, Marlo. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Wayne, New Jersey. How can we help you today? I have a question about cooking with cast iron. Mm -hmm. Ever since I've been cooking more seriously, I've had a ceramic stovetop. And I've never quite been able to get cast iron to work for me. And somewhere along the way, I came up with the thought that maybe cast iron doesn't work as well on a flat ceramic stovetop as compared to over a gas flame. Well, here's the thing. It Actually, it really should work just fine, mm-hmm. but you need it to give it time to heat up because the thing about a gas stove, and that's why everybody loves it, you turn it on high and it's on high immediately, the flame, the heat. Mm-hmm. But with electric, it takes a yeah. while to get up there and it takes a while for a cast iron pan to heat up. So it's just understandably because the stovetop is not hot for a while, the pan is going to take that much longer to get hot. So I think you just need to give it more time. Chris, do you agree? Yeah. Our food editor, actually, Matt Card, who he's had to cook in rental homes on an electric stovetop, agrees with Sarah, but he said, and I I do the same thing now even on gas, you heat up cast iron to sort of medium-low heat, for like mm-hmm. 15 minutes. Wow, okay. Because you'll have hot spots if you heat it up too fast. So you really want to get that whole pan hot so it retains heat properly. I would go medium low for a longer period of time. And then when you're cooking with it to adjust the heat, of course, cast iron is not going to adjust quickly because it's heavy. But just take it off the burner and move it to another burner quickly. And that's one way to adjust it. But low and slow for heating it up, and that should do it. So... I think Sarah and I are actually agreed. Yeah, how rare. Amazing. Hmm. <laughs> Who's going to pay for dinner <laughs> now? Good to know. I never heated that long, so that's very yeah. good to know. Think of it this way. The heavier the pan, the longer it's going to take for it to absorb and distribute that heat, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. All right. Okay. Take well, care. thank you so much. Yeah. All right, Marlo. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mo Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our own listeners. Hi, my name is Patrick, and here's my tip for serving pie. I often was frustrated when pieces of pie would stick to the pie plate. So now I butter and flour my pie plate before I put in the dough, just as I would with a cake pan. And now the slices of pie, even the first piece, come out cleanly. 
By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip here on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant Martha, what uh, words are on your mind this week? Well, we've been in the kitchen going through the drawers trying to get all our utensils in order. And one of the things that we got to thinking about is the argument over which tool in the drawer is actually the spatula. Yeah, Chris, do you have strong feelings about the word spatula? <laughs> Does it keep you awake? <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, it's usually a wooden stick with a rubber end on it. You use that to flip your pancakes? Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, okay, good point. The thing is, there are actually more than two different kinds of instruments that can be called a spatula. And it's no surprise because the origin of spatula connects to spades and swords and animals and lots of other things. Yeah, it goes way, way back to the Latin word spatula or spatula, which goes back to a Greek word that means a broad blade or a surface for spreading mixtures. And that same word gives us the word spade in a suit of cards, which is also sort of like a spatula, if you think really? about it. You know, the, the four oh, of spatulas, the four spatula. right? Yeah. But interestingly, it's a different spade than the garden implement, which comes to English by a different path, even though way, way back, they probably are related. And then another word that is related to the word spatula that comes to us via French is the word spay in English, you Mm -hmm. know, which is an operation done with a sharp blade on uh, your animal. And that comes through the French épée, which uh, refers to a particular kind of sword. Uh, But another really cool kitchen tool that I never thought much about until I started digging into it linguistically is the word colander, Hmm. which comes from a Latin word colare, which means to strain. And that might not be that interesting to you, but what got me all excited about it was it's also related to the word percolate, which means to strain through if you're percolating percolating Uh coffee. Got it percolating coffee. Exactly. And one more word that will be familiar to you is that strained pineapple drink. The pina colada. Wow. There you go. The colada is related to colander. That's what colada means. (laughs) Chris, this is what we live for. These forehead smacking moments, you know, where we say, oh, that's where that comes from. And that's that connection. In other words, it's a drinking game, right? Essentially. (laughs) Well, yeah. speaking of forehead-smacking moments, don't smack your forehead as you pass through the portcullis because portcullis is also connected. <laughs> you know, this is the big castle right. grate, G-R-A-T-E, that blocks a tunnel or entrance. Yeah. Yeah. The port part comes from the French word for door, but the collis part comes from the Latin for filter or strain. It is directly related oh. to the same Latin colare. And in fact, there's a rare term collis, C-U-L-L-I-S, meaning a strong broth, made, of course, by filtering or straining. So things go back to Latin very often. Yes. But they go through 85 <laughs> permutations before they end up today. In other, in other words, if something started out in Latin, where did it go next, most likely? Usually, they come into English through French. That's most often the case. So many of our food words have traveled to us through French. The French influence on food 
throughout Europe and even large parts of the non-European language-speaking world is immense because they have such a strong food culture. It's like Russian, for example, has many food words, just like English does, that come from French, but were originally in Latin. Well, because they were hiring French chefs all the time in the 19th exactly. century, probably. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Well, another great example of a term that goes all the way back to Latin is our term charger. You know, mm -hmm. when you put a hot dish on the charger mm -hmm. on the table, that goes all the way back to the Latin word carus, which means a wheeled vehicle. And it's where we get words like car and cargo mm -hmm. and carriage. And it led to the French word meaning to load, charger. And uh, we still have this meaning in English. English, you know, we charge a battery by loading it up with electricity, or or we charge our nanny with looking after the nanny's charges. <laughs> and this leads us to what a nanny really needs when she's doing work. She needs some zest. And you have zesters in the kitchen right. that make zest that you might add to a dish. The origin is murky, but we do know we got it from the French again, and that it appeared in English by the mid-1700s. There's a theory that I like that it comes from an old expression in French, entre le zeste et le zeste, that is to be between zest and zest, which means to be indecisive or to be neither one thing or another. Oh, I love that. <laughs> or there's always the Australian expression, I don't know whether I'm Arthur or Martha. I use that one all the time. Yeah, these are great. We're going to leave you with a little bit of talk about whiskers. Uh, whiskers actually come from the same root as whisk. When you whisk up a froth when you're huh. doing your eggs, the whiskers on your face or the whiskers on a cat have the same origin. And they all go back to Scandinavian words that all have to do with um, quick motions and that eventually led to uh, ideas of brooms and sweeping and then to, to stir, mix with a quick, easy movement. And then by the 1500s, a WH was added to the beginning of the word to make it more like pronunciation of the period where people would aspirating their H's like whip and whisk. But um, there is a strange term that I want to share. It's called flutter whisk, which meant feather broom. And it's where you had a dried goose wing that you would use to maybe sweep out the kitchen. Ah, the old dried goose wing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, dirty kitchen floor, get out the goose wing, put the kid to the work. <laughs> as, as long as the wing's not still attached to the goose. Yeah. yeah. Right. You usually have those in twos. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, one for the kitchen, one for another room. Well, Grant Martha, I'm just going to refer to you now as Zist and Zest. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. Uh, from colander to whisk, um, I'm up to date. Outstanding, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, co-hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. If you tune in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, and learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. 
Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.